Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Breaking Down Mental Health, with myself, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Heidi Burns, nurse practitioner, Dr. Christina Swiner, and social worker, Saima Khan. We are joined this week by social workers, Brianna Lewis and Martha Kerr, to discuss child protective services in the state of Michigan. Brianna Lewis has a Master of Social Work degree from Wayne State University and a Bachelor of Social Work degree from Western Michigan University. She has extensive experience in providing social work and mental health services. She previously worked for Child Protective Services in Wayne County as a CPS investigator for three years. During this role, she investigated alleged abuse, neglect, and or abandonment of children to determine if abusive or unsafe conditions exist and took the appropriate actions to ensure safety of children in accordance with state-mandated timeframes. She also conducted the removal of children and arranged emergency placement for any children that could not safely remain in their home. After working for CPS, she worked as a medical social worker at Harper Hutzel University Hospital for one year. Currently, she is a part-time psychotherapist at International Therapy Solutions, where she provides mental health counseling, crisis intervention, individual therapy, substance use prevention, and utilizes a variety of therapeutic interventions, such as person-centered, psychodynamic, family systems, solution-focused, CBT, DBT, and trauma-informed care. Along with being a therapist, she's also employed at Michigan Medicine as a clinical social worker on the Child Psychiatry Consultation and Liaison Psychiatry Service. Martha Kerr is the Child Protective Team Coordinator for Michigan Medicine, University of Michigan. She has been a social worker for almost 40 years, having graduated with her master's degree in social work from Wayne State University. For the past 17 years, she has worked specifically in the field of child abuse between Children's Hospital of Michigan and Michigan Medicine as Child Protection Team Coordinator for both health systems. Prior to this, Ms. Kerr worked for 16 years in the field of HIV-AIDS, her work ranging from community case management to being manager of the HIV-AIDS prevention program for the Detroit Health Department. Other work has included being a mental health therapist, substance abuse counselor, and pediatric social worker. Ms. Kerr resides in Detroit with her family and cat. None of the speakers here today have any conflicts of interest or financial disclosures. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Let's get started with a very basic question. Brianna, what is Child Protective Services? Yes, thank you. Child Protective Service is a service where specialists utilize child welfare practice skills to ensure children are protected from abuse and neglect. When a child abuse or neglect is indicated, specialists work closely with families and the legal system toward a goal of reunification, independent living, or other permanent living situations. And I'd also like to add that uh, Children's Protective Service is an act that requires the reporting of child abuse and neglect by certain persons and to provide for the protection of children who are abused or neglected. So it is important that people understand or our audience understands the importance of mandated reporting and how Children's Protective Service works. Can you explain to us who is a mandated reporter? The Child Protection Act requires the reporting of suspected child abuse and neglect by certain persons who are called mandated reporters. And it permits the reporting of child abuse and neglect by all persons. So sometimes there's the thinking that only mandated reporters have to report suspected child abuse or neglect. But in reality, we are all reporters. So if there's any suspicion of abuse or neglect, a community person, a neighbor um, can make a report. 
As defined, a mandated reporter can be a physician, a nurse, a social worker, a law enforcement officer, clergy, daycare provider, a mental health therapist, a dentist, a teacher. Those are some examples. And mandated reporters, due to their expertise and having direct contact with the child, can identify many times suspected abuse or neglect. But as I said before, anyone can make a report to Children's Protective Service. Thank you both for starting us off with some definitions and understanding kind of what is Child Protective Services, you know, who is a mandated reporter. And and I think it is really important to reflect that, you know, not only do health professionals have this responsibility, but many other people in the community and in, you know, the CPS is available to community members as well to, you know, explore if there's concerns about abuse or neglect. I think, you know, one question that oftentimes healthcare providers have is how do we report Yes. So anyone, including a child who suspects child abuse or neglect, can make a report by calling the number 855-444-3911. After you call to make that report, you will need to fax a form called the DHS 3200 to centralized intake, which is located on the Michigan.gov website. If you want to eliminate the requirement of filling out the 3200, In calling to report, another way to file a CPS complaint is through the Michigan online reporting system. Thank you, Brianna. I think people forget um, like how to do this sometimes and are kind of a little intimidated by it. I know the first time that I called CPS, I was not sure what to expect, but the person who answered the phone on the other side was very nice, but they're also looking for some very specific information and often ask things like, you know, who are you calling about? What's their age? Where they live? Who do you think's causing the abuse? And, you know, as a person who's made the report or is trying to make a report, we don't always have all that information. I think remembering that that's okay as well. So kind of throwing another question out there, generally people think of CPS as a negative thing, but what are some of the things that CPS can do other than just remove children from their families? Yes, yeah, CPS does a wide variety of things, um, as far, and it's not all negative. It's definitely a lot of positives that come with having an open CPS invest- investigative case. Um, so some of the things that Child Protective Services can do is they can recommend or require services for parents to attend on classes um, regarding parenting skills, help substance abuse issues, family violence, job search and training services, counseling to help manage anger, stress, or other problems. Um, They also recommend services for children with developmental delays and refer them to early on programs. So working with CPS is not always a negative thing. They're able to put services in place that can be able to help the family. And also the goal is to help the family. So usually they don't have to worry about them getting another CPS case filed against them because there's also times where a lot of families can have multiple CPS uh, complaints in order due to them not having the right services put in place. And if I can add, I think that many times in our collective experiences when working with families, if you mention, you know, because I am a mandated reporter and I have to file a 3200, many families get very upset or scared and they will say, oh my God, CPS is going to remove my children. And if one thing I have learned in my years of experience and being trained, you know, through uh, DHS is that the goal of Children's Protective Service is to keep families together. Mm -hmm. Removal is going to be an extreme. 
you know, the situation has to be very dire for that to happen. And so as Brianna was explaining, there are many services that they can provide. And there's also a program, which is escaping my, my memory right now, but uh, where parents have successfully completed services and have been reunified with their children. And they talk about how they serve as advocates for other parents that are going through the same thing. So it's a really good service. Absolutely. And one thing to always remember is the goal is for reunification with the families when working with CPS. I think it's really good to just remind ourselves of that because the whole process sometimes can be quite traumatic for even providers as well as the families involved. But it's it's nice to hear that, you know, really we're, we're working to sort of help people, give them access to resources and keep them together. So now that we've talked a little bit about, you know, how to actually do the CPS reporting, what can we expect after a report is filed? So when someone calls in a report to Children's Protective Services, centralized intake, it is reviewed by a supervisor and then the determination is made whether to actually assign it for investigation. And so many reasons sometimes why it may not be assigned has to do with there may have been a referral that was already made. It may have been made by several sources. It could have come from the hospital. It could have come from the police. It could have come from, you know, EMS. And so if it does not get assigned, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It just could be that someone else has called it in. But the CPS worker has up to 72 hours. And of course, more crucial referrals are are done much sooner, within 24 hours. And many times within hours, they'll show up at our, our hospital. And so that is the timeline that we look at um, for investigative purposes. And what about for the provider who actually made the initial report? What could they expect following the submission of the report? Yes. So what they can expect after filing their report is the CPS worker will reach out to them between 72 hours because they are the reporting source just to provide any and get any additional information regarding why they filed the report, anything that they found after they filed the report that they want to add and include, like any other additional abuse abuse or neglect concerns that they may have. And once they reach out to the reporting source, which is a provider, after that, it's pretty much left up to the CPS worker to conduct the investigation. Once the investigation is complete, they will send a letter to the provider or whomever called in the report to let them know that the case has been substantiated or not substantiated, um, meaning they did find a preponderance of evidence saying that abuse or neglect did occur within this child or unsubstantiated, meaning they did not find a preponderance of evidence um, of abuse or neglect against the child. Something we hear a lot is, you know, different levels of, of CPS or, or investigations. And then I think also how things are sometimes screened in or out, you know, whether cases are assigned. I think if there's any insight that you could share with our audience on that, it would be really helpful. So as I mentioned before, uh, many times when referral is made, it can get screened out because other referrals have been made or it's possible that this has already been investigated and so there's no need to you know, reassign it. Many times what will also happen is that when reports have been screened out and the mandated reporter really feels that this really merits more attention, they will call, contact us, the child protection team, and we will advocate for them. And so it is not unusual for us to call centralized intake and speak with one of the managers. 
and maybe provide more information or provide more clarity. And actually, I was involved in a situation like that last week. And, you know, it, it took some time, but they did overturn it and they did assign it. And by the end of the day, the supervisor from the county office was calling um, and was taking this very seriously. And she said, we are sending somebody out right away. We're gonna have someone go out and look at the home. And she says, I just want you to know that we're taking this very seriously. So, you know, so a word of encouragement is that if it is rejected, you know, there are avenues or there are ways, you know, to, to advocate. Yes, and to add, sometimes um, the cases may get rejected because us as providers kind of put too much information in the reports. And kind of like what's too much information is saying like community referrals were given to the family, patient is currently connected with outpatient providers, et cetera. It could look like interventions have already been put in place and there are only minimal concerns versus severe concerns that the outpatient treatment team could possibly handle. So sometimes we can call in a report and list everything that we're doing, and then it doesn't kind of count as a safety concern for the family, for them, for the patient to be able to discharge to go home. I think it may be helpful, you know, for our audience to kind of be aware of, like, if there is a situation, you know, if they're um, in a hospital setting and they're worried about safety and, and they've kind of filed that 3200, um, which is the term that we often use kind of informally, you know, we talk about CPS um, reporting, you know, what can that healthcare provider do if they are really worried? One of the things that I would recommend is that anybody, whether it's inside our health system or outside in the community, can call our child protection team. We are available 24 hours, seven days a week, and I will give that information in a few minutes. But we can do many things. First of all, if we are talking with a provider who has never filed before, you know, we can explain our policy, our hospital policy. You know, we can explain how to file what to put down in the 3200, you know, answer any questions, provide clarity. Uh, On occasion, there have been times when I will say to the provider, I will walk with you step by step on this, you know, so they're doing it online, you know, and they're talking to me at the same time. Uh, But, you know, we are a consult service. And so it's more than just helping fill out a 3200 or calling it in. Sometimes it's I get a call um, from a mental health therapist, you know, who says, I just saw, you know, this family in therapy, and they disclose this information, you know, should I file? And so we will discuss. And sometimes if there's not enough information, or if I have additional questions, I will uh, instruct the mandated reporter to go back and get more information so that if we have to file, we have more thorough, complete information. So I just would like people to know that, you know, we are available, Uh, you know, we are social workers, but we also have board certified child abuse pediatricians who specialize and they can talk with uh, physicians or nurses who have even more maybe complicated, you know, questions pertaining to the health or the injuries of the child or, you know, a medical diagnosis. So it's just good to know that we are, we are available. Our phone number is 734-763-0215. And for those who know how to page us, my pager number is 2750. And like I said, there's always one of us. There's another social worker that works with me, and we are available to answer any questions. 
I think having the the child protective team within the the University of Michigan has been a really helpful resource. I know I've called you guys many times and been like, can you walk through this case with me? Because it's not always black and white of what needs to be done to support a child or adolescent when something is doesn't seem right. And there's a lot of gray area and how do we best protect this individual? So we appreciate that. And uh, we're always thankful to have you guys around for sure. And kind of on, on that note, I think it might be helpful given the vast amount of experience that our two guests have today to, to sort of talk about some of the fear and anxiety that can come with filing a report like that and, you know, discussing it with a family and sort of how to manage that in the moment um, with a patient, you know, who may be at risk as well as the parents who you're still working with and trying to, you know, provide care for in this, in the hospital setting. You know, how can we, how can we manage both, you know, that awkward conversation of, hey, I've, I've had to do this as a mandated reporter, there are some concerns, but also, you know, I, I'm still working with you want you know want to have the best experience possible as your provider. I would say the best way to do that is kind of walking them through the process um of letting them know saying that I'm going to be I'm going to have to be able to file this report. This is not saying that your child will be moved removed right away cuz sometimes when you tell parents CPS they automatically think that okay, you're got they're going to come in and take my child. Um so kind of just going through sitting down with them and kind of just explain the process like you know I will be able to I'll file the report, they'll contact you and then they'll have they have 30 days to investigate the case. And then if they need further questionings, then I would say refer to the consult team the child protection consulting to be able to help for any further questions that they may or may not be able to be clear on. So giving, you know, it sounds like kind of giving clarity about the process is really helpful to sort of let families know what to expect and, and that can maybe sort of stem some of those fears that they might have. And if I can also add that for the providers, Many times they will say, I know if I file, this is going to impede the, relation, the therapeutic relationship that I have with this family. And so we're human, you know, and people have reservations about filing, and we understand that. And so this is a really good opportunity for us to provide education to the provider that, you know, the consequences of what happens when we don't file. And I don't want to go into a whole lot of uh, discussion about that, but if you do not file a CPS report and abuse is substantiated, it could it could come from another referring source or the child dies, you as the provider have to live with that. And it can impact your license. You know, you can be imprisoned. I think um, it's 93 days and $500, which to me, I don't know what 93 days and $500 is. That yeah, number exactly. <laughs> but, but having worked in the situations that I've worked in and talking with mandated reporters, when things like that happen, it's devastating. You know, and so let's not get to that point. You know, our job is to protect children. You know, and so filing is what we do. You know, and, and that's where we can fall back on the law and say we are mandated reporters. You know, by law, we have to file. But I will work with you. We will work with you. You know, and, um, and I said before, uh, I, I can tell you some really good stories where our child protection team has been very instrumental 
in disproving abuse. And so we had situations where everybody was really, it was not here, but was really convinced that this parent was guilty of abuse and our doctor was able to prove it was not. And, and think about that because they were getting ready to uh, terminate parental rights and we were able to help. I think it's really important to, you know, I think also bring up some of the, the resources that were shared earlier that, you know, I think we, we definitely view CPS as this negative kind of lens, but that oftentimes they can help support with identifying additional community resources, connecting families to services that they may not have access to otherwise, you know, where there may be insurance barriers or other types of limitations. Um, so remembering that kind of lens too, that they're there to help and that removal is really kind of in those extreme situations and ideally rare and the focus is on reunification and helping strengthen that bond between the parent and their child. Sam, I think you took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say a lot of times I approach the situation as, yes, this is what we have to do to protect your child and make sure that your child's in the safest situation, but this is what CPS can do for us. And oftentimes we've reached out to CPS because they have resources that we don't, and this family's in crisis and we need help all around. And they're able to get us connected with those resources, and we've seen a lot of success stories come from that that referral. Absolutely. And to believe it or not, there are more success stories than unsuccessful stories when working with CPS. But we understand parents' anxiety around just the word Children's Protective Services. But there is more um, success stories than unsuccessful ones. And, and to piggyback on that, I think it's such a shame that the only thing we hear in the media, you know, is when a child dies or when foster care has not been, has not gone well. Um, and like you said, Brianna, oh my goodness, CPS workers are really wonderful people. I mean, they really give their heart and soul, you know, into this work and really work hard, you know, to reunify families. And for the most part, most families will be cooperative, you know, but we don't read that in the paper. We don't see it on, you know, on TV. I mean, when we see families struggling, um, whether it's parenting style or, you know, neglect, oftentimes it's a cry for help. And we're able to get them, you know, connected with food resources or, you know, those parenting classes because it's maybe a, you know, a young person who's struggling behaviorally and just needs a different approach, but the parent just doesn't know how to do that. So I, I think this resource is one of many, but it's a great one that's there to add. I also think that a big one that families like to rely on CPS with is children with developmental delays. They can be able to put them in certain programs, like I stated before, the early on programs, and they can't really get into those programs quickly without CPS involvement. Once they see the behavior changes of the child and how they have developed in a very, very good way, they're pretty much thankful for CPS versus against CPS. We're all a team, and I think it's often CPS is a member of that team, too, and, and so kind of maybe approaching it like a partner, too, that, you know, there's care that we can provide here at Michigan Medicine or there's other community resources, and just like that, CPS is another one of those members of the team that can help identify things and, and help connect people to care. Mm -hmm. I really like that kind of image that this is a team, this is a partner. And just like we call in, um, you know, the cardiologist when we're reading that EKG and it's showing a prolonged QT and we're like, oh no, what do we do? Um, we call in our specialists in um, child abuse and neglect to make sure we're doing the right things for that as well. 
Martha, I know you mentioned the child protection team here at Michigan Medicine and that this is kind of a statewide resource. I am actually hoping maybe you could just elaborate a little bit on the team and kind of um, some of the additional services that they can provide and how other people um, at other healthcare institutions uh, may be able to kind of use that service and support. So I'll start with talking about um, in the state of Michigan, there are other child protection teams that work in other health systems. Um, Helen DeVos Hospital in Grand Rapids, Children's Hospital in Detroit, Beaumont Hospital um, in Troy, Bronson Hospital, and um, I still call them St. John's Ascension (laughs) in Detroit. So, you know, there are child protection teams there, but our team uh, is comprised of two board-certified child abuse pediatricians. And so when I say that they're board-certified, they have to pass boards, just like other physicians, in the area of child abuse. And they've had special training or having gone through fellowships. And so we are very lucky to have two board-certified child abuse pediatricians, our medical director, Dr. Bethany Moore, and Dr. Carla Parkin-Joseph. And so in addition to our, our physicians, we also have two social workers, myself, Donna McMahon, And we have a nurse practitioner, and her name is Andrea Duncan. And we have our administrative assistant, Sarah Castillo. And so Sarah's kind of our front door. When you call the child protection team, she's the one that answers the phone, and she kind of triages the call in terms of who to direct the call to. In terms of the services that the child protection team provides, we do many things. So if a child comes into the hospital and is admitted, Uh, and there is concern for abuse, we always want to make sure that a 3200 was filed, that CPS is on board, that law enforcement, if necessary, is on board, and then our, our two physicians will do a very, very thorough evaluation. And so they will not only examine the child, but they will review all the recommendations that are being made during the course of treatment, as well as reviewing records you know, so if they came from another hospital, they will review those records, they will review the, the imaging, the x-rays that were done there, and uh, sometimes we may even have to go a little bit further back, but they will be very, very comprehensive. Uh, they will provide a report or an evaluation uh, to Children's Protective Service. Our doctors are uh, willing to testify in court. Um, and so this is very helpful to the medical team when, when there is multiple services you know, involved. We have a clinic that's called SCAN. It's suspected child abuse and neglect. And the clinic has uh, two locations. We have one in Mott and the other one is at West Ann Arbor. And we will schedule appointment. This is by appointment only, so it's not like you can walk in the door and say, I want to see the child protection team. Uh, These are done by appointment, and our referrals can come from other physicians who do exams and maybe have questions or other concerns, Uh, so we will schedule appointments. Uh, They can come from the Washtenaw Child Advocacy Center, and so when children disclose abuse during a forensic interview, and based on that disclosure, we will then see those children in our clinic. If a CPS worker has concerns where there's bruising, they will call us and say, should I send this child to the emergency room or can you see the child? And as you know, the emergency room can be a very busy place. And so if we need to document something quickly and we have the availability, we will have CPS, we will see that child in our our scan clinic. Um, 
And uh, the one thing I want to be very clear about in terms of sexual abuse is that we do not do evidence collection in our clinic. That has to be done in the emergency room where there's a sane nurse, you know, that can do that. Other things that we do is we do second opinions. Um, I took a sec second opinion this morning. So we get calls from CPS workers in other counties and uh, they uh, it could be a situation where the child was seen in a local community hospital that doesn't have pediatric special specialists. And so that physician may not feel comfortable giving a diagnosis of abuse. And so then they will call us and we will review the records. Uh, we will do, uh, we may see that child in, in our scan clinic or we may do a virtual appointment. Uh, but we will look at all the imaging, make recommendations, and our doctor will also do a very thorough report to give to Children's Protective Service and testify if needed. And then again, we're just available for consultation, you know, to, uh, we get calls from law enforcement, you know, the prosecutor's office, um, other physicians, you know, uh, we have uh, residents that when they complete their time here and they go on and establish practice somewhere else, they will call us and they will say, I remember you guys, you were very helpful. Will you help me? Of course we will, you know, and um, we, again, we have a very nice relationship working with Children's Protective Service and so many times we can also contact those different counties and uh, workers, you know, and um, make suggestions and they will be very, most of the time they're very receptive to that. So. I think I've ran into this barrier once or twice in calling CPS. And one of the questions that they ask, and I'm kind of curious, you know, why I think I know the answer, but they ask about if the individual is living on reservation land. And how does that change a child's maybe protection? And what is the route for helping those individuals? It's really on based off a case-by-case basis. If a child is living on a reservation, like say, for example, like an Indian reservation, they have to go through the court system before they can investigate or even see the child. So just they like to be able to act at first just so they know how they can contact the proper people because they have to be able, whatever tribe that patient is a part of or affiliated with, they have to contact them first in order to begin their investigation. Thank you so much, Martha, for sharing about child protection team. And I think one thing that I found really helpful in contacting and speaking with, you know, the child protection team is that, you know, recognizing that oftentimes the child protective services worker may not have as much of that medical background. And so it's really important for us as healthcare providers to be able to communicate that information in a way that's um, accessible to the workers so that they can kind of understand the medical concerns that our teams may have. And so child protection team often kind of helps us walk that line of like, how do we communicate this information to help the um, agency that's not a medical agency understand the concerns that we have. Any additional thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience today? I think I would just like to say that you can call us at any time, you know, and it doesn't necessarily have, you don't have to feel like it's a really grandiose or, or big problem. Sometimes it's just calling for support. You know, and we want to be supportive to our colleagues, you know, and um, by the same token, it's we have the same type of relationship with our CPS colleagues, CPS worker colleagues, and they have difficult days and times. And so they will also call us, you know, to, you know, pick our brains or, you know, give them feedback. You know, am I looking at this correctly or, you know, I just can't quite understand this. Can you explain it to me? And 
Um, again, I just want to emphasize the support that we can provide to everybody. And I always say there's no question that is stupid or irrelevant or you should never feel embarrassed. You know, that is what we're here for. So whether it's big or small, you know, we want to be that support to you. I second that. We're all a team. So thank you ladies for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and your expertise. You've educated us a lot about the services available to us both at the University of Michigan, but also throughout the state. And now we want to pause for just a second as we are concluding our season. This is our last episode, and we want to thank everyone that has helped make this podcast possible, especially our tech and editing support, Joe Hallisey, Linus Brush Mendel, Erica Bass, Kat Bergman, Rebecca Priest, and I'm sure many others that I have forgotten to name here. We also want to thank our colleagues who are covering us clinically while we put this together and record this podcast. Finally, we want to thank all of our speakers that have joined us this season. We truly appreciate everybody's time and expertise. Thank you to our audience for joining us throughout this season. And to nurses, social workers, and physicians, you can claim CMEs and CEs at uofmhealth.org slash breaking down mental health. You're able to do this anytime within three years of the initial air date. We hope that you will join us next season.